Good evening from New York City. I'm Casey McCall alongside Dan Rydell. Those stories plus we'll head out to the Hoosier Dome where Bobby Knight's done a little interior decorating and we'll leave room for more hockey than you can shake a big stick at. We'll bring you the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and because we've got soccer highlights, the sheer pointlessness of a 0-0 tie. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so stick around. Alongside Adam Amin, I'm Steve Cimino. Those stories plus we discuss episode 11 of the first season, The Six Southern Gentlemen of Tennessee. And this is an Aaron Sorkin Christmas episode, which he has become famous for over his career. Some of my favorite Sorkin episodes are Christmas episodes. I'm glad you mentioned that at the top. One of my last notes is how much I love his Christmas (laughs) episodes. He always does a really nice job with them. They're always... A little more emotional. There's always something extra that it seems like he puts into them. I mean, between this episode, you go to the West Wing, and all of the Christmas episodes just seem to be so tremendous. In Excelsis Deo in the first season of West Wing. The second season with Noel, with uh, Bradley Whitford's character going through post-traumatic stress disorder. Bartlett for America in season three, which is one of the best episodes of the entire West Wing series. And then an episode of Studio 60 that you and I both adore. The Christmas show. It's just called The Christmas Christmas Show. show, The ending of that episode, it was right after Katrina. That's where we have, they're kind of sneaking in a bunch of musicians from New Orleans to come and play. And there's that beautiful, beautiful rendition with the slideshow in the background of Oh Holy Night that they do. That's so good. So good. So it's, a, it's good to see a Christmas episode right off the bat. Here. Yeah, he's really done a good job with them. And, and this is a tremendously interesting episode because of how much it parallels what is going on today uh, as opposed to 1998, 18 years later. And the problem that is going on in this episode about a young football player named Roland Shepard is so nearly identical to many of the things that a lot of us in the sports media world are thinking about, reading about, writing about, and talking about. And somebody who does a lot of those things, all of those things, as a matter of fact, is Nicole Auerbach of USA Today, one of my favorite sports writers. And she will join us later on in the podcast to discuss not only this episode, but some of the issues that she's been covering and writing about that have direct parallels to the story that we see in The Six Southern Gentlemen. A very good conversation with Nicole. And I think it definitely adds to watching this now to see, like, as you said, like, holy cow, this could have been written yesterday. This Absolutely. Episode is, yeah. It's right on point here. So. Let's, uh, let's talk about let's it. Let's do it. The original air date is December 15th, 1998. This episode written by Aaron Sorkin, Matt Tarsis, David Walpert, and Bill Rubel. Now, I paid attention to the opening credits That's me time. too. Good. And in this case, we've got written by Aaron Sorkin, the word and, and then ampersands between the rest of yes. them. Yes. So I think that means he's the lead writer, and the other three are a trio of writers that all work together to either work on a draft or work on a section or maybe be editors in some capacity, but Aaron Sorkin is the lead writer, and it's like Aaron Sorkin and company. Right. It's it, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a doo-wop band that has that <laughs> in the same capacity, you know, or like if it, if it was Casey and the Sunshine Band. There you go. It's Casey that's they really are the, the star, band. but then they're the Sunshine Band. Right. Too. All important, but a team effort in the long run. Yeah. This episode is directed by Robert Berlinger. This is his first of 12, and... I, while re-watching, I actually had to watch this episode twice because there's a fantastic commentary on the DVD with uh, Robert Berlinger and also Josh Charles and Peter Krause and Sabrina Lloyd, and it is really, really nice to hear them talking about it. So I've got notes about that that I'll try and interject throughout the episode as they mention some things. Yeah, please do. And he's got an impressive television resume, especially. He's done a couple of films, but his TV resume is pretty extensive. So there was a lot of cinematic to this episode as well. And actually, one of the first things that I noticed was in one of the opening scenes 
where Casey and Dan are talking. They're sitting next to each other at the desk, and you see Dan's profile talking to the left side of the screen. He His profile is on the right side, and in the middle of the screen, there's the monitor in the background that has Casey like adjusting his suit and his microphone and his tie, and just the back and forth with the close-up shots that we talked about in the last episode with Denny Gordon, same deal here with Robert Berlinger. A lot of cinematics, and it has a really slick cinematic feel to it. So I really enjoyed the direction of this episode, too. Definitely. And worth noting, right off the bat here, they mentioned a couple times in the commentary at least one or two episodes where they put in 96-hour weeks and a couple of 24-hour days just to get some of this done. And Robert Berlinger had a quote where he, I I can't remember which scene it's in, but he says, oh, if I would have tried to get this many shots of coverage now, I'd be shot. (laughs) So they they really took their time and put a lot, a lot of effort and did a lot of coverage shots in this. So the result is that kind of more cinematic, much more more pretty-looking episode than, than just sitting there with the three cameras in front of a screen. So our synopsis for this episode... Isaac proves he can still fight the good fight when he publicly criticizes Luther Sachs, owner of CSC, and Casey learns that the Sports Night team is the holiday gift that keeps on giving. So that's, that's, two, two, that's two, two pretty two. cheesy uh, <laughs> synopses we've had here. But, but you know what hasn't changed? The high quality of your reads. I appreciate that. I, I really put in the effort. <laughs> so the show opens up with Dan and Casey starting kind of to get dressed and walking their way onto the soundstage. Uh, they're discussing kind of the lineup of what's going to be going on on the show today. There's nine hockey highlights, so Jerome is going to be happy. <laughs> and this is right off the bat starting up the storyline where Casey knows nobody's name. He's kind of just in his own head, doing his own thing. It's interesting, too, in the commentary, they made a couple cracks about how egotistical and kind of narcissistic Casey is. And the whole time we've been doing this show so far, we've kind of considered him a dork and like a... Like, he doesn't seem very cool, but then in this in this one, it really shines through that he thinks he's some pretty hot stuff. He's feeling himself in this episode, as the kids might say, and, and obviously he's going to get a chance to go on that cooking show, which is not <laughs> really a cooking show, it's The View, but he's going to get a chance to go on a, a popular morning talk show, and, and uh, they seem to think, you know, well, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but... They seem to think he's very attractive and that, you know, ladies, he's single and all these nice things are being said about him. So he's feeling himself in this episode. And it's the first time I really feel like we're seeing some of that. Some of that yeah. come out. He's the talent. And he's starting to be like, he's I am to, the talent. I am the talent. I deserve yeah, exactly. this, this praise and this credit here. Which, by the way, is a word I cannot stand. The talent? I, I oh, hate that word so much. You are officially only called the talent I, from now on. I hate that word so much. And that it's used. I understand it's a, it's a business term or, you know, an industry term. I cannot stand that term when they say, can we get the talent in, in their <laughs> spots? I go, can you just call me Adam? Can you just call us like our names instead of that? I'm changing your name on my phone oh, to first no, name the, last name talent. <laughs> can you just That's do a talent it. comma the instead? Hey Siri, text the talent. That's what's going to start happening. That is amazing. Admittedly, <laughs> I actually want to be a fly on the wall when you actually do that to Siri. <laughs> So it's Christmas time, as we discussed, and the set is fully decorated. Yeah. we got Christmas lights hanging from the rafters. We've got a ton of poinsettias. We've got an extremely gaudy wreath right behind them. <laughs> it's a very large wreath. Well, I mean, this is they, they, today it would be like, you know, on SportsCenter, they have the digital center, which are these huge monitors that you can put whatever you want to on. So I think they would just digitally impose oh, yeah. uh, a wreath or a Christmas tree in the background or make it somebody's living room. And instead here, we have to go with the big honking wreath. <laughs> I want to know I want to know what their set budget was for the <laughs> amount of poinsettias. There's like 22 it looks like, poinsettias. It looks like a fourth grade classroom, I think. It's intense, man. <laughs> 
So into the control room we get Dana then trying to figure out what's happening in Chattanooga. She gives this big long question to Jeremy wanting a very succinct answer, which he gives her. Tell me what's happening in Chattanooga. Tell me quickly, tell me succinctly, bullet points. We're on the air in less than two minutes, so don't give me a valedictory address. Talk to me as if I'm a small child. Tell me what's happening in Chattanooga. I don't know what's happening in Chattanooga. Okay, tell me a little more than that. So some kind of story is happening in Chattanooga. They, they really are wasting no time getting the ball rolling on every storyline we're getting here. We're 25 seconds in. We know Casey's going to have to start learning some names. And we know there's something big coming out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is pretty exciting. Back on set, Dan is really encouraging Casey, hey, we're on a team, and our team's goal is to produce a nightly television show. Learn the names of your teammates. And uh, the reason I brought this up is because this will be a running theme throughout the entire episode is kind of knowing everybody that you work with and being part of the team. And I just think this is important because I work on a crew. Every single football season, I work on a crew. And we work together every single week for the entirety of the football season. We might get matched up with another crew once in a while or somebody needs a substitute or whatever. And and that'll happen. And that happens a lot. And that's not that big of a deal. But for the most part, from the first week of the football season until the college football playoff is over, whatever games we do, we are with the same people week in, week out, producer, director, graphics, camera people, audio, everybody. We're all together every single week and we all work together every single week. And I make it a point and I've been told that this is actually something that's really appreciated, which I never really understood why it would have to be a separate thing or that big of a deal. But technical crew people really, really appreciate it when you just give them some 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 love, some gratitude. You say thank you, you shake their hands, you give them a hug, and you let them know that they did a great job. And for whatever reason, I didn't think that was a big deal. You're supposed they're, they're part of the team. But I found out when I first started working at ESPN that there are a lot of people that don't necessarily go out of their way to to thank or appreciate or, or or give some gratitude to the people that they work with on the technical crew. And I, I you, you see that with Casey throughout this episode. And that's what Dan's doing. Hey, what about this guy? What about that guy? And they're talking about all these people on the crew that, that they don't, that, that Casey doesn't really recognize right off the top. So that's, I just wanted to bring that up right away. That, that is an important aspect, uh, especially for us on the remote side of things where we're traveling all, uh, all around all the time. We get a little bit of uh, information about what is going on in Chattanooga. There was an incident at Tennessee Western, which I believe is a fictional school. Fictional university in a fictional town as well. There has been something going on with some black athletes and a Confederate flag. That's about all we get. Isaac comes in and asks what's going on. Nobody can give him an answer, and he has a great line. But fundamentally, we're still a news-gathering organization, right? And Dana's retort, which, by the way, two weeks in a row, her retorts have been, I mean, razor sharp. She just says, yeah, but we're not very good. (laughs) So that takes us into a commercial, and when we come back, we are still in the middle of the show. Kelly Kirkpatrick throws it back to the guys in studio. She's out in Green Bay. And we start our kind of minor storyline for the week, which is the discussion of play of the year. They're going to announce it on New Year's Eve. They're trying to figure it out, but they say, we want to hear from you, audience. And it's really funny. This is really early in the days of, uh, of the internet, and we get this fantastic email, I guess, email address. I guess it's an email address, or, or is it the website? But it's CSC slash sportsnight.com. I, I don't even know where they it's would It's not take. a real website. If, if you do try that, I, I, and admittedly I did, <laughs> just to see what would happen. <laughs> and uh, it just goes to Google search. And of course, all the Google searches are for Sportsnight because nobody in their right mind would ever type csc slash sportsnight.com. 
we were just talking a second ago about how it reminded us of the what's internet? It's an A with a circle. Yeah, it's like from a, the Katie, Today Katie, Show Cor- Katie Couric and uh, Brian Gumble and I think Matt Lauer too were all discussing you know this new internet craze and how you send an email <laughs> to people. So I thought it was pretty funny. Well, what well, Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network, mm-hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. At the end of the show, our credits run, and of course, we've got monster trucks. I'm telling you, I really hope there's some kid like sneaking up, <laughs> staying up late because he wants to see what Gravedigger did that night. But <laughs> it's a, it seems like it must be a nightly update of what's going on in the monster monster truck series. I didn't know there was such a, a busy circuit going on that they needed to talk about it every single night. I didn't either. Yeah. So be it. Dan and Casey start to head back to their office, uh, starting to talk about the cooking show that Casey's going to be on tomorrow. It's not a cooking show. So what are you planning on cooking tomorrow morning? I'm not cooking. It's not a cooking show. Are you sure? It's a news show. The View? Yeah. The one with Barbara Walters and the four women who cook. They don't cook. It's a news show. Who are the other guests? It's just me and another guy. Who's the other guy? You're having a good time, aren't you? Who's the other guy? It's Wolfgang Puck. You want a piece of me? (laughs) No, but thanks. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't complain about this, but we get some really heavy exposition right here when Casey says, uh, you know, you could, it wouldn't kill you to do a little press, and we get reminded that Dan's been grounded for six months. Right. Uh, it's that random kind of expositional line. Casey would know that. We as audience members, maybe not. But we find out that he, apparently, in a callback to the apology, still can't do any public statements for a few more months. So it's just going to be Casey on The View talking about who knows what, but just trying to spread the word about the show. And we also find out that Dan is really desperate to get out there and do some press, although he tries to play it really cool, says he's very content to not do any press. He's dying to talk to large groups of people, even though he does that every single night for an hour, but he is desperate to do a little press. And I love that Dana comes in at the end and goes, hey, good luck on the cooking show tomorrow. (laughs) We have a scene change, and it takes us right to the view. We go straight to the view here. This is a very... 90s set. Oh my, I was thinking the same thing and very 90s outfits for uh, for the ladies as well and it is you know, it's all the familiar faces. Meredith Vieira showing up right off the top. A young, young-looking Meredith Vieira. Star Jones is there. Debbie Matinopoulos who I had forgotten about completely. And Joy Behar who's still cruising along in 2016. She is going for, what is that? That's t- almost 20 years almost now. 20 years just rocking show. the view. So he uh, is basically just just talking about the show, nothing really specific going on. But by the end of the discussion here, they turn to the fact that, hey, you're newly single. Yep. And it's very sexy for a man to know how to dress himself. Apparently, Casey's neckties are like his signature. Which we didn't realize at all. We had no idea that his wardrobe was even... I mean, at one point earlier in the series, Dana makes fun of him. goes, no, you dress cool. And he realizes... That he's being made fun of. So now all of a sudden, he is like Mr. GQ wearing all these impressive fancy neckties and all that. But uh, apparently he's kind of working himself towards that, you know, kind of confident level again. And uh, apparently he's a little bit of a superstar now. The fact that they're, they're referred to as the famous neckties. The famous As neckties. if everyone at home just, just tunes into Sports Night to see what Casey's wearing that night. All right, maybe they are, but sure, it's the first and last time we're going to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, this so, is the only. T- this isn't going to become a running theme in the show by any means. And in case you forgot, it was 1998. He ends his interview with a carrot top joke. So there's that. <laughs> and all that being said, he's a very char- he's very he's charming, very, very charming. On, on the show. So yeah, yeah, he he impressed. He did a good job on the show, and and that's all you're gunning for when you're trying to do press like that. You will appreciate this on the commentary. Robert Berlinger says. Peter, your hairstyle is different in every episode. <laughs> That's true. While he's on The View, and he says, I don't know what to tell you about that. <laughs> well, his hair is different on The View than it is in the final, or it, it is when uh, Monica comes in for the first time later in the show, Janelle Maloney's character, and it's different at the end of the show when he's doing his last episode of Sports Night when 
uh, Robert Guillaume's character, Isaac, comes on and does the editorial, his hair is different again. They let me know also that it was one take to get that interview done, which is makes sense. It's about 20 seconds. Sure. They just kind of scooted over to the view and... Uh, Josh Charles makes a, a nice little joke, and I think it would be interesting. He says, what was it like to do press as a character doing press? <laughs> because he says, no one likes doing press, so I imagine that was pretty awkward. That's super meta, I think, right there. It's what was pretty, it like, what was it like doing press as a character doing press? That scene ends, and we come up into the conference room. We have the little funny lines about the spelling of Chattanooga, and uh, no one seems to be able to get that quite right. I'll say this, too. I've done a Tennessee-Chattanooga football game. And I didn't realize this until two years ago when somebody asked me about it when I was getting ready to do that game in December of 2014. Apparently, a lot of people say Chattanooga. Like, instead of saying Chattanooga, they'll say it, they'll make it three syllables. And I go, why would anybody do that? It's Chattanooga. Like, it's clearly spelled that way. Yes. And, so, and somebody in the state. In these the are state, natives of the these state. These are natives of the state. goes, all the outsiders always say Chattanooga. And I'm like, Really? <laughs> Who says that? I've never heard that I've before. never heard it once. It goes, just trust me, they do. So if you could, just make sure you say Chattanooga. I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I, yeah, I, but the only issue is now that you've put that into my head, I might actually screw it up. That's, I, I thought it was going to be a Louisville, Lowellville thing, but I've never, ever heard anyone say Chattanooga. Sure. And I was just in Louisville, Kentucky, and you'll notice I, I say Louisville, right. and I am a, a steadfast Louisville. sayer of Louisville, Kentucky. So somebody actually did tweet me during my game on Friday night and said, hey, just so you know, I really appreciate that you say Louisville. It sounds like you're a native. And I'm like, all right, I, I can take that. But that's how I've always said it. Blending right in the talent. Then I drink a lot of bourbon just to <laughs> just to really fit into the whole whole atmosphere of Louisville, Kentucky. So we find out officially what is going on in Chattanooga. We've got a football player named Roland Shepard who is deciding he cannot play underneath the Confederate flag, which is flying outside the stadium. Some facts about him. He rode the bench for two years. He just got the starting role a few weeks ago and has been really showing his skills. He's also majoring in chemical engineering, which is, according to the show, a very, very hard program at the school. And he's got really good grades. So they're threatening to kick him out of school because he won't play. And he would then become suspended, get his scholarship revoked, and end up getting back to Tupelo, which is a, as you pointed out earlier, fictional town. It is a fictional town in the state of Tennessee, but it is a real town in the state of Mississippi. There is a Tupelo, Mississippi. And I will say this, too. In the state of Tennessee, one of my favorite restaurants in the entire country is in Knoxville, and it's called the Tupelo Honey Cafe. And the first time I went there, I immediately thought about sports night, and nobody else at the table thought of it. I only thought about Uncle Tupelo, which was <laughs> which was Jeff Tweedy's band before Wilco. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I I didn't realize we were going to have so much going on in Tupelo. But I'm uh, pretty impressed. I have to ask you this: Did you notice Jeremy's tie when he when he when he started oh, yeah, talking? He's, he's wearing a knit tie. It, well, it's it's, it's not the a square bottom. It's the knit square tie. bottom tie. It's a square. I, I thought that's a really interesting choice. And then now I realize that if you put him 18 years later, he would fit right into the hipster community with the glasses and the square cut. Well, tie. now I feel insulted because both of my glasses <laughs> and the fact that I've got like four or five square bottomed knit ties. And whenever I wear them to work, I have students ask me if I made the tie as if I because like, it looks like you know it's not conventional yeah. and it looks like somebody just literally took scissors. To uh, to the tie, they're good. They're good cold weather ties because they're, they're it's a thicker material. It's knit, but, yes, yes. But I I'm a big fan of, of the knit tie, and now you got me feeling like I'm some oh, hipster no. doofus, which is you know whatever. Maybe I am. Well, you did say hipster doofus right away too, which I can appreciate. <laughs> so as we introduce this story about Roland Shepard, as you mentioned earlier, Nicole Auerbach is a writer for USA Today who's been covering a lot of the same issues in 2016 and really the last couple of years that are portrayed here in 1998 Sports Night fictional universe. So. 
we thought she'd be a great interview and a great person to talk to to get some insight on this. So without further ado, here is Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for having me. We have to ask right off the top, why did you enjoy Sports Night? How did you discover it? Great question. So I will give my dad some credit here. Um, he, you know, he got me really into sports in general um, because, you know, I think there's a difference between, and Adam, I don't know if we've talked about this, between like, you know, playing a lot of different sports growing up and then kind of watching them and consuming them. And so I credit my dad a lot for that because I feel like once I started watching the NFL regularly and kind of scheduling my weekends and Mondays around NFL games and I fell in love with Peyton Manning and all these different things. My dad had New York Jets season tickets. Like that changed um, the way that I absorbed sports and loved sports. And ultimately, obviously, somehow down the winding road ended up to me being a sports writer. You know, he at one point tells me, Nicole, you know, I got a show you're going to love. It's not on the air anymore. It's kind of old. Um, it was like from 1998. And I was like, dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Like I was, I, that was basically just my reaction to everything he said. Like, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to try that. No, I don't want to eat that. Like, no. And so like for a year, he just like every couple months would bring up Nicole, there's a show it's called sports night. It's kind of like a behind the scenes, like sports center. And I'm like, dad, no, I mean, that show is like so old. Like I'm not interested in that. And then one time when he wasn't around, obviously I like threw it, he had bought the two seasons and we had him on DVD. So I just like popped it in and I watched one episode and I was like hooked. And so I have to admit that he was correct about that. And, and the way that he always described it, which is so true, is that it was really ahead of its time. Because if that type of show came out now, I mean, you think about like how popular the newsroom was and like how many people tried to watch it and were interested in it. I right. mean, it's so much exactly the same as Sports Night <laughs> that like it would have been it would have been a huge hit because Sports Night is better. And it's just it's just crazy how how ahead of the time it was because like I mean Sports Center has gotten even bigger and people care even more about like the personalities who are on it. It's just anyway it was just it was just phenomenal and and watching it back like in the last couple of years um, especially as like the Six Southern Gentlemen episode we're going to talk about like there's so many issues that are really really timely even today and it's just sort of like it would be such a show if it was like on now and it didn't get canceled and we got to see if Casey and Dana ended up together and <laughs> just so many things I have so many thoughts I have to ask if you remember what that first episode you saw was because we just last week watched the one that was my first episode and had just rushes of emotion coming back to me oh mine was mine was the first one oh right from the top. So you started yeah. from the pilot yeah. okay very nice well my dad had both both seasons on dvd so i started right at the beginning I never thought of myself as like a fan fiction person, but all of a sudden when you and I were kind of texting back and forth about you doing this podcast, all of a sudden we kept coming up with scenarios about, man, what if Dana and Casey had gotten together? What if the show was like a modern day show? And I never thought of myself as that type of fan until you and I kind of started going back and well, forth. Well, I, I think that this, this show lends itself to, I think like probably any show that gets canceled early like has that. But this show clearly has like these big overarching. Um, storylines that really got cut short. Like, I mean, that's what, I don't know if you guys watched Newsroom, but I was watching it because there were a lot of parallel relationships that were like almost identical to Sports Night. And I almost feel like they had um, Will and Mackenzie like end up together because Casey and Dana didn't. (laughs) And they like ran out of time and didn't let us see that. Um, But it was like not nearly as satisfying as the original couple would have been. Yes. Because I love that. The Newsroom to me seemed like Sports Night Mark II where yeah. they were like, well, everything we didn't get to get into, we'll get into. Yes. Like we actually had the the Luther Sachs character 
in the form of Leona, and you got to actually see that a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. same deal. Where it wasn't, while it was good, it wasn't quite the same feeling for me either. No, and but they, you know, like they certainly had the same types of like annoying aspects of personalities <laughs> and like all of that. But the, you know, the sports sports night was so much better. And I also think that one of the things that made it so much better was that it was fictional events because you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't. I mean, a lot of these kind of tied up in a knot at the end of the episodes, but like you didn't know exactly how they were going to go. Going into the career path that you went into and the career that you're in now, and obviously as we, as we mentioned, you're a very accomplished writer in your position. What influence did this show, if any influence, did it have at all for you? Well, it, it actually, I mean, I watched it before I even like kind of stumbled into journalism. Um, quick backstory, I went to the University of Michigan and I thought I was going to major in um, economics or business or something. And uh, basically I, I'm moving in my freshman year um, and I'm talking to a girl across the hall who's a sophomore. We're talking about our dream jobs and she wants to be a heart surgeon and like very noble, like help people thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to write for Sports Illustrated. Um, and, and she had her best friend work for the student paper at Michigan, the Michigan Daily. And, um, you know, it was kind of like, here's an email for someone. You should go to a meeting and kind of, you know, rolled from there. Like I hadn't really pieced together like my interest in sports and doing it for a living, like getting to write or talk about it. Um, so I don't think that when I watched Sports Night, I thought about it at all, like that this could be something I could do. I mean, I was, that was just me as someone who like would wake up every morning and watch Sports Center, um, but never really think of them as like real people, if that makes any sense. Or like, you know, like, I, like I'd read Sports Illustrated, but never really think about, like I, I, I like recognized bylines, like I understood which writers I liked best, but like I didn't think, oh man, that's just like a normal person who goes to games and like gets to write about it. Like it, that is a tangible job. Admittedly, um, we have that same issue sometimes when we've talked about that. You know, Steve's not in the world of sports or media and I am. And we've I've always kind of asked him his opinion on that. And I think we've found that same parallel with a lot of other people who maybe only know you as your autonomous writing robot, you know, and or autonomous media yeah. personality. That's all they know or see you as. And when they actually get a chance to realize you're a person, it's a lot harder to yell at you for no reason or kind of just criticize you for no reason either. Yes. And that's definitely true. Um, it's been interesting watching it back now, especially like the last couple of years I've been doing some TV work with Big Ten Network. Um, so I'm more like paying attention to analysts versus hosts versus reporters versus interviewers, you know, different roles on TV. So it's like really interesting now to watch back and even pick up, you know, the different when they refer to like PAs or, or different things that I totally would have missed, you know, when I watched this for the first time, like in high school. We're with Nicole Auerbach of USA Today, joining us talking about the six Southern gentlemen of Tennessee. And that's the episode that we wanted to discuss with you for obvious reasons, because it's maybe the most paralleled episode, obviously being written in late 1998 or airing in late 1998. And, you know, fast forward 18 years later, and we're seeing and dealing with a lot of the same things. And you have a, a pretty good handle on a lot of these situations, and you've been covering a lot of them over the last several months. So when you watch this episode, and Jeremy Goodwin is in the conference room, and he's telling everybody about Roland Shepard from Tupelo, Tennessee, a non-existent town, by the way, uh, <laughs> do you hear any parallels? Do you feel anything that you can relate directly to based on the things that you've been covering? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think what struck me when I watched it back was as soon as um, you had asked if I wanted to be on the podcast, I watched the previous episode and I watched this one. The Confederate flag thing sticks out immediately because of such an uproar about that in general. Was that last year now when everyone was kind of protesting the Confederate flag in general? And, and, and so, you know, there's just been so much 
general news coverage about that and, and that being a hot button issue and um, actually coming down. And then you also have this going to be the first year like NCAA is going to have events in South Carolina because of that. And so, there, you know, there's, there's that element that, um, you know, is, is very timely. And then certainly the, the idea of, of an athlete protesting something um, and, and even removing themselves from competition. I mean, I've been writing about the anthem protests a lot. Um, I wrote about Nebraska's Michael Rose Ivy, who kind of became the most prominent college athlete to um, protest the national anthem. And, and he talked about kind of like all the awful things that people are saying. He, he just, you know, is defending it and explaining it so eloquently. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm transported there when I'm watching this episode and you have the athlete, um, to, you know, he's talking about how, you know, it was very important for him to be the first in his family to go to college, but, you know, his family would understand that he doesn't feel comfortable playing in a stadium next to, you know, underneath a Confederate flag. And, and it's so similar because we're literally talking about people, you know, and how they feel about the flag that is over their games. Um, and, and in their sense, you know, they're trying to explain that 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 is a flag that gives them the right to protest and right. the right to bring up certain conversations and uncomfortable truths and, and injustices that they view and things like that. So, you know, it was just, it's so timely. Um, and obviously Colin Kaepernick started the whole thing, but but the college athletes who've talked about why they've joined in the protests have been really interesting and, and they've brought up different aspects about all of this. It's not just police brutality. It's not just the lyrics of the anthem or whatever. I mean, they, they are really doing research and understanding all the different layers to the protest, which I personally think is the whole point of a protest is to get people learning and researching and talking. Um, and, and then just recently over the weekend, um, Nigel Hayes held up the sign that he's a broke college athlete uh, during ESPN college game day right. and created a stir. And, and it was very interesting to see the reaction to that too, because Nigel Hayes actually has already joined two years ago, joined a lawsuit against the NCAA about compensation. And, and so he, you know, continues that stance. And um, I saw a lot of people really tearing him down and saying, you know, he's not the right poster child for that debate and that conversation because he, went to the NBA combine and, and could have gone pro. Um, and I just thought that that was, that was ridiculous because he has the right to go pursue a professional basketball career when his earning potential is the greatest and when he's ready and when he's going to be drafted where he's aiming to be drafted. Like just because there's an avenue to play overseas or in the D league doesn't mean that if you come back to college, you have to be silent about what, <laughs> what you think is an injustice that you're not paid um, and, and coaches are making millions of dollars and conferences and schools are making millions of dollars. So I sort of wrote a column defending that and, and his ability to protest and his ability to speak up, um, much like Josh Rosen at UCLA, quarterback, he's been, he did a lot offseason talking about kind of speaking up against those types of issues for those who aren't comfortable doing it. And, you know, that really paralleled the episode, especially when Isaac um, brought up at the end how that there were the other players who joined the protest and were that's not right. the star player and they were not going to immediately get scooped up by another school. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's the concern is, is, you know, those kids are the ones that you worry about. You're not worried about the star running back. Who's probably yes. going to get picked up by another team. So I think that's interesting. You bring up Nigel Hayes because who is, who's to judge who the right quote unquote poster child is for these issues. Exactly. And, and just because he feels comfortable stepping up doesn't mean that he's literally trying to say he is broke. It's, it's a point he's making. It's for people who aren't comfortable doing that. It's, you know, it's 
people are like, oh, what about those? You never hear about those Division Two athletes who are on the buses everywhere. I'm like, great, because they don't have the platform that Nigel Hayes does. Exactly, like, they're yeah. not their school's not hosting game day, and they're not the most recognizable basketball player at the school. So if they hold a sign, they're going to be on TV. I mean, it's it, it's just it's kind of, and I'm sure it's exactly the kind of conversations that like a theoretical situation on that show would have prompted where you have so many everyone gets really charged up about this stuff too which is shocking like the anthem stuff like I mean it's been going on for a while now and people are still really angry about it which is kind of mind-boggling to me but it's it's like that episode aired in 1998 and like I feel like we've made exactly zero progress because this exact same thing is happening now. And I know that was hypothetical. Um, but I, I feel like the backlash and all the different angles to it are probably exactly the same. Yeah, there wouldn't be much reason to use that as an example if there weren't examples of that even in 1998 that were relatively right. apparent. And I know you've seen a lot of them between Nebraska this year, Missouri in the last 15 months between what Colin Kaepernick is doing and what some other college athletes have decided to do, what Megan Rapino has done. So when you see these stories, when you're writing about these stories and when you're talking to the people that are involved in these stories, how do you kind of approach this knowing that, I mean, you're trying to shed some light on yeah. exactly what the issue is and what, the, what people may or may not know about. How do you approach these stories when there is so much nuance that you have to dance around? Yeah, well, what's been really interesting is um, I've been at USA Today for over five years now, but in the last, I would say last year, but certainly in the last few months, um, you know, there's been a push everywhere nationally, you know, more analysis and opinion. I mean, people can get the same straight news story anywhere. So we've kind of been um, encouraged to do, to do more of that. So the Nebraska story I wrote about this and the Nigel Hayes thing, um, were both columns, um, and I've also written a column about Art Bryles and the sexual assault scandal at Baylor, which we've also talked about um, off, uh, not on this podcast. But it, it's 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 a different way because you're taking a stand, um, so you're explaining something, but you're also, you know, making a point. And and I think that that's been a little bit different um, for for me personally because you know a lot of times you you do try to write about these things and you're trying to be nuanced and and be fair and include both sides. But honestly, what prompted the writing about some of these topics the way that I did was that I felt that they were being unfairly, the, the point of view that was being taken was not fair and wasn't considering, honestly, wasn't really defending in, in both the, the protest examples we've talked about, like weren't really defending that, that student, that athlete as like a person that deserves the respect that they deserve and, and that has life experiences and value. And, you know, Colin Kaepernick has tried to make this point as, as another NFL players that, you know, just because you're an athlete doesn't mean you're only an athlete and you have to stick to sports and you have to only stay in your lane and not, and as, as if you've had no world experiences, as if you don't know anything about money or injustice or, you know, poverty or, you know, any, anything. And, and so, just kind of coming at it with that. And, and I just try to read as much as possible I can about the situation. What's great is, um, you know, certainly with, with Nebraska, there's press conference footage um, and, and you can kind of see it delivered and, and read and raw emotion, um, you know, and then just seeing how people are reacting to things. I think that what's been great about this, and, I, and it was at Big Ten Media Day and a lot of coaches and players were asked about anthem protests because college basketball, I mean, you, both teams are out there for the anthem every game. And what's good is that everyone's having the conversations and the coaches are 
even if they're players and their team, even if they, they personally don't, you know, they want to stand, they're going to put their hand over their heart for the anthem. They're open to the conversations. They're going to support their players. And so I think as long as everyone's kind of got support around them, like it's, it's a harmless, peaceful protest. Um, and hopefully it, you know, creates discussion. So that's, that's the point of view I come at it with. Um, and I'm able to kind of interject that more into the story because it can be opinion. You know, in the past, you know, it, it was it was difficult, you know, situations like, let's say, Florida State and their handling of the James Winston investigation or different things like that to, right. to go straight. You know, like I had opinions about those things, but I couldn't write them. Um, so so at least with these, it's like, well, I believe these are nuanced issues. I believe there's a lot of layers to them and I can kind of explain why I think that is and why, you know, Basically, both of them, the point is, like, we should listen to these guys. Like, they have a right to talk and speak up about these things. And, you know, sometimes, like, that's enough of a point on its own. Well, as I was watching this episode to, to start talking about it today, I was thinking about how different it would have been today. Because, as you said, everyone kind of has an avenue in a, in a big, wide world to talk to very instantly now with the Internet, with Twitter, with with all of that going on. And the character on the show did not. It was just a press conference. Yeah. And that's that. So he didn't get to hear that immediate maybe backlash or, or response like is so prevalent now. So have you had to deal with any of that negative stuff coming back or how would you deal with that if and when it does come your way? Yeah, you know, I actually had that same reaction um, when, when I watched that. I mean, obviously there was a dramatic reaction was that he got kicked out of the school or team or whichever it was. But yeah, he didn't get like a zillion tweets that were like racially charged <laughs> right, and like, exactly. like awful. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, this stuff gets really, people really heated and, and the Anthem stuff does, um, you know, anytime tweet about any athlete accused or charged or anything with sexual assault or violence, domestic violence. Um, but yeah, patriotism, um, which is so intertwined with football, you know, it just has become Mm -hmm. like synonymous that everything is like very patriotic and you have flyovers and all the flag stuff and 9-11, you know, anniversaries and NFL games. There's just like so many things that are intertwined. So it's been really, really charged. And when I write about that, um, I get a lot of it back. Cause again, I was defending, um, the Nebraska players for their, the right to do that. And, right. and for the, everyone around them, the coaches, um, the university president, all these people for just, you know, for supporting them and like, you know, just defending them and saying they have a right to free speech. Um, especially when they had like a trustee who was like out there saying they should be kicked off the team. Um, so I was defending that. So, so, you know, I got part of it. It's like, you know, about how disrespectful those players. I mean, it's, it's, it's a much smaller fraction than they're getting directly. Um, but then the Nigel Hayes thing, I mean, there are a lot of people who really, it's very much like a, Hey, they should be so grateful that they're getting a scholarship or everyone, you know, I mean, they don't have student debt, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like, well, other kids have scholarships too. It's not just athletes. And, um, and it's like, well, here are all their obligations. Nigel Hayes is going to be in like, you know, six cities in 10 days for basketball games and football players, you know, can't major in engineering because of their schedule and all these stuff that's commitments and make it so much like a job and their coaches are making millions of dollars. And so you have all these things and it just, it's so exhausting to get into Twitter conversations with people who are so black and white on these issues. Um, so I kind of don't, (laughs) (laughs) well, it's, it's hard to be nuanced 140 characters at a time. It really is. And, And I see people just go back and forth all day on these topics and it's like, just really hard to, to shed light on one side when you come at it. Like if you if you firmly believe that college athletics 
they should be amateurs. No one should get paid a cent. You should not get anything for your autograph, your image, or likeness. Nothing. Like uh, me writing that Nigel Hayes has a right to hold up that sign and you know defend college athletes. Like they they're not going to change their mind. So it's um it's it's definitely a strange place to see some of these like issues that stretch beyond just like one athlete and one college. You know the concept of college athletics. Like you said, I mean, you only, you only have 140 characters. You're not having like a really civil, <laughs> intense, thorough conversation. And so you get kind of the extremes and ends of the spectrum on these things. Well, obviously, we're talking with you about this show, and we're very happy that you could take some time to sit down with us and talk to us about it. So as we let you go, being an Aaron Sorkin fan, being a fan of this show, being exposed to this show at a relatively early age, what do you enjoy most about maybe this episode or this series in general, what's the thing that sticks out to you most about this show? First off, I always love Isaac. So I love when he does his little monologues and his um, commentaries because they're really good. And now again, like I told you, like I'm sort of doing some TV, like I'm just like, man, that's powerful delivery. And like, it doesn't look like he even wrote notes. Like it's as if he just wanted to say this off the top of his head is the way they're projecting this. Like that's insane. Also, I love the secondary plot line about Casey and his his suits and ties and like knowing all the people who help him like and how um, and then they give everyone shout outs at the end. It's very cute. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I loved about the show was um, it, this is something that I've I've appreciated watching it back now that I work in sports. Like sometimes I think of sports solely as work now and like I'll come home and you know, I, I need to watch Netflix or something because I just like can't turn on a baseball game because like it just I'm gonna be thinking or like on Twitter like it it, it feels like work, um, which is something you my look dad at it like it's something that you're gonna need to know for whatever yes. capacity that you're in for your job. Yes, and like I can't consume it just like as a fan anymore. And like sometimes That's I can't. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, like sometimes I'll go to a baseball game in the summer and I'll just like sit and have beer with friends and like it feels enjoyable. Um, but if I'm watching at home, it doesn't always do that. So I, when I watch sports night, it like makes me enjoy like the made up st- sports plot lines that they have. And like all like, the, like they obviously like enjoy so much of it, you know, and that's part of their characters, right? Like that they are goofballs and like they love sports and like Jeremy like knows all these obscure facts and all these different things. But like, that joy and like the excitement when they get really into a story. Like I certainly do that, but I don't always think about that when it's, you know, when it's happening. Cause you're like on deadline, like at the, fi- like the final four, like I was at the, one of the best championship games last year, like two most insane shots, Marcus page and then Chris Jenkins. And I'm like stressed out. I mean, I've got multiple game stories going. I'm like getting prepared for overtime, like all that. And then like, you know, the next day or like a week or a month later, it's like, wow, that was really cool. That was really fun. But like, it's so much, it's stress and anxiety and work in the moment. So it's like, what I enjoy about watching the show is like seeing the enjoyment parts where I'm like, oh, I know I get like that. I do get excited about a great story and someone's, you know, 40 year old person's about to finish a marathon or whatever is happening. You know, it's like, those things are the reasons like we all got into this and we like love sports. It's like those moments. And sometimes like when it is work, it, you like forget about them sometimes and the show always reminds me of that. Plus, I love Casey and Dana, and they need to end up together. In my mind, they do, because <laughs> it's this, like, Ross and Rachel, like, are they or are they not? And then eventually, like, 
Dana drops that stupid rule. I hate that rule. The rule about how he has to go out with other women. They're still going to end up together. And also Josh Charles, who's Dan, I actually just watched the entire series of The Good Wife just because he was in it, because I love him as well. So (laughs) it's the best. And um, if you guys want me to come on for any other episodes, I'm more than happy to rewatch old episodes to prepare. We really appreciate you taking the time for us tonight, Nicole. And thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, anytime. We really appreciate Nicole Auerbach taking the time for us tonight and shedding some light on a lot of the situations that she's been dealing with that directly, it's incredible how directly they parallel this exact same situation that's going on with Roland Shepard. To me, the Michael Rose Ivy situation at Nebraska is maybe the most similar one. Basically, high ups at the university that didn't appreciate Michael Rose Ivy, who's taken the lead on this, and a couple of other football players who knelt during a national anthem. So his situation is very similar because he had a press conference. He actually asked the governor to have a meeting with him. So he really took this at a very grassroots level and a very calm and peaceful level. And he really did want to start some conversation about it. And a lot of the things that he said really did parallel what Roland Shepard says in this episode. So I'm glad Nicole was around to be able to talk to us about it. It's nice to be able to connect Again, real-world stuff to fictional stuff, although it's sad that we can connect real-world stuff to fictional stuff like this after all this time. So after the meeting in the conference room, we have a walk-and-talk going on with Isaac and Dan. They're heading in there. We're about to get one of the great Isaac-Dan father-son moments that we've really... I didn't realize how many of them there were, but I really like them. Oh, me too. They're very good moments. And as we'll see later on in, like, season two, Dan and his father have kind of a strained relationship, so you can totally see him just latching on to this, like very positive influence in Isaac Jaffe. And again, Aaron Sorkin writes these types of characters a lot, guys who have strange relationships or non-existent relationships with their fathers, and they turn towards a father figure and lean on that person for advice or vice versa for that matter. So uh, you see that a lot in Aaron Sorkin shows, but he writes it well. So if he's, if he's going to write it well, I'm certainly happy with appreciating what he's doing. And in this case, we find out that Luther Sachs, who has been mentioned before, he was mentioned in the Apology, at least, he's the, the kind of founder and CEO of the Continental Sports Channel and, and Continental Corp. Uh, he is an alum to Western Tennessee and has some buildings named after him, so he really wants to kind of shine a light, a positive light, on the Southern tradition and on what the Confederate flag stands for from that whole perspective, which is always an argument you hear when the Confederate flag comes up. Uh, and Isaac asks Dan to do it, right? A little two-minute story for us to put on the air, and Dan is kind of dumbfounded by this. He's, you really want me to do this? Are you sure about this? Dan is like, what? Why? What? And he kind of just says, just do it, all right? I'm not going to fight. I can't fight every one of them. Just do what he what he wants. And and Isaac tells him to stop thinking of me as the champion of all things black, which is like a yeah. whoa moment from Isaac there. And, and the look on Dan's face when he hears Isaac say that is a little bit jarring to him, and I don't necessarily know if he was pushing just that, the, the aspect of being a black man and, and seeing a young black man be persecuted by the university that he's attending. I don't know if he was pushing it just in that direction, but Isaac clearly feels like if he does this, this is the only thing that it's going to be looked at. It, it's the only reason people are going to say, well, of course he's going to talk about this. And, and I think he understands that he doesn't want to get into a battle that he doesn't feel, A, he can win on his own, and B, that he can't win against somebody like Luther Sachs. So Dan, dumbfounded says, okay, I'll do it if that's what you want. He's he's playing into that. We go to a commercial, and we come back, and here's Casey. He's just (laughs) sitting there in the office watching TV, watching The View, and really smiling at his interview that he just gave. 
This is where we see a little bit of that narcissistic Casey McCall. I go back and watch every single game I do on TV. I, I, I do it for, for educational purposes. I, I look to see what I can do better, what I did well, what to work on. But I'm never sitting there like wholeheartedly satisfied with everything I've done on a broadcast. Like I just don't. I, I actually hate watching myself, but I do it because I have to, because I, I have to do it to get better. But anytime I watch myself back, I just cringe more often than not. And this goes back to what you and I were talking about last week where most people in media kind of in, in, a, in a way don't want to be noticed. You know, like we just want it to be smooth and clean. And for me, when I'm watching a game back, if I notice something, it's probably something I did wrong. Looking at Casey, it's not like he's watching this again to make sure like, oh, was my performance good? Oh, exactly. He's loving yeah. it. Oh, he is, is, he is so self-satisfied. He's I can got- 100% be like, all right, great. You, you like you said, I, I'll listen back to some of our our podcast episodes to be like, what can we improve on? What worked? What didn't? That's kind of feeling it out. Casey's just like, look at me on TV. Man, look I how am, good looking I, I am. Good looking. I am charming. How do you not love? Look me? how much Star Jones loves me. <laughs> is what he's thinking to himself. Well, listen, all of us should be so lucky to have Star Jones as a barometer for how charming and awesome we are. So as he's sitting and watching and enjoying himself, who walks in but Donatella Moss herself? <laughs> Janelle Maloney. We get the first chance to see a young, bright deer in the headlights, Janelle Maloney. She comes in holding some ties and some shirts. She looks a little nervous. She says, can I ask you a question? Unless you're, unless you're preparing the show. And Casey seems like, sure, what, who are you? Like, he doesn't seem to know who this girl exactly, is. Exactly, yeah. And of course, the question that she asks is... What... What's my name? What's your name? Yes. What are we doing right now? If this is a bad time, I can just come. I'm sorry. I'm not very good at remembering names. Who was the number two man on the Boston Red Sox staff in 1977? It was Ferguson Jenkins. So Casey goes from being just super confident while watching himself on TV to suddenly really, really awkward and uncomfortable as he realizes, she's put me on a spot. I don't really... I don't know your name. I feel yeah. He feels bad, obviously, but he's also like, what, what can I do for you? Like... Why are you doing this to me? And we get, in, instead of like him being chastised, this really, really powerful moment from, her name is Monica, she's the assistant wardrobe supervisor, about how she would have liked to hear him give credit where credit was due. Mr. McCall, you get so much attention and so much praise for what you actually do, and all of it's deserved. When you go on a talk show and get complimented on something you didn't, how hard would it be to say, that's not me? That's a woman named Maureen who's been working for us since the first day. It's Maureen who dresses me every night. And without Maureen, I wouldn't know gunmetal from a hole in the ground. So I think it's really cool that this is a minor character, a one-off character, who gets this really, really big monologue, yeah. and really powerful monologue, in this, this relatively unknown actress at this point, I think probably totally unknown at this point, yep. gets this big, big chunk to give to, to the, one of the stars of the show. And I didn't really like it initially. Like, I didn't like the pushiness, and it almost seemed kind of, uh, I just, I didn't like how she went about it. But then you realize why she's doing it. It really hits you harder when you realize why, because she's basically sticking up for Maureen, her boss, somebody that she works under, somebody that she clearly cares about, and the way she talks about Maureen, you know, her kids would have loved it. You know how many times she would have played that for him. Like, you clearly see why she is so impassioned by wanting to kind of stand up to Casey. Even though he didn't really realize he did something wrong, she wanted to point out something that he could have done better. And I, at the end of that monologue, I liked her a lot more <laughs> than when she first started uh, in this scene. She even points out to him, she says, don't mention anything to Maureen. She'd get really mad. Like, yeah. she just thought... This is a wrong that needs to be righted here. She tells him, you get so much credit for things you deserve. 
give credit to this person who's like an un, an unsung hero who works really hard and makes you look good, which it's a, it's a nice it's a nice moment, and it gets that much nicer because. Snuffy Walden is playing some sad little <laughs> mandolin chords underneath it all. And Snuffy it, stepped up his game in these last few episodes with the schmaltz factor, and I really do love it. We have a new scene, and we are in the conference room with uh, most of our, our crew trying to figure out what will be the play of the year. They're making lists. They're eating Chinese food. I love Jeremy saying, why do women enjoy making lists? And again, I don't think it's just women who enjoy making lists, because I like making lists, and I like crossing things off those lists. I'm a big list maker, but I, I also just like to doodle constantly. I'm always <laughs> writing. So if it's a list I'm going to use or not, I'm just writing stuff. Some of the uh, suggestions, we get an, uh, some funny moments. Kim passionately wants the women's ice hockey team to be the play of the year because they won the first Olympic gold medal in women's ice hockey. Jeremy says, no one cares. Get past it. And then Jeremy, when he's asked for his opinion, obviously he brings up the Mark McGuire hitting 70 home runs, which, you know, is a, is a play. The women's ice hockey team winning the gold isn't necessarily a play. Right. And then Jeremy brings up Jeff Gordon for some reason. And Kim goes, why would why? 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 NASCAR? <laughs> Nobody cares about NASCAR. And Jeremy, I think, incorrectly claims something. He says, because it's the world's most popular sport. Now, I did some research on this, and I, and I looked around a little bit. So NASCAR is obviously very popular in the United States, especially in the South and the Southeast. But by total fans, I don't think it's the most popular sport in the world by a long shot. That's clearly soccer. It's got to be soccer. It is absolutely soccer. But something that may actually kind of help him out in this case, car racing in general. So NASCAR, Formula One, IndyCar, all this other stuff, those things actually have the highest television ratings worldwide. So if that's what you're talking about, I guess technically you could say that it's the most popular sport in the world. A funny commentary moment here. Somebody, I think it's Josh Charles, does a a my precious Smeagol impression. <laughs> oh no! Because and they're calling Josh Molina. Uh, You're calling him Gollum. They're calling him Gollum, oh, man. and they're like loving it. They're laughing twice. They call him Gollum. I'm sure it's just like an in joke among among them. Uh, yeah, but, but at first I was like, oh, what oh. on earth kind of? And then I realized. Oh, it's just like, you know, buddies, ribbon buddies. But it's I, I would never have thought that he would be a golem. They also do a little discussion of, uh, well, is this when Jeremy and Natalie are, are in full swing here? They're trying to figure it out. They're like, oh, yeah, that was right in the pilot. And uh, Robert Berlinger asks, is Jeremy somebody you would be interested in in real life to Sabrina Lloyd, who he keeps calling Natalie <laughs> for the first half of the of the commentary? He fixes it at the end. I'm like, does he think her name is actually Natalie? I might actually think her name is Natalie. But uh, she, so she says, well, somebody that can make me laugh, yeah, you'd win me over. And then one of them says, what about Josh Molina? And she's like, oh, no, I don't know. Like, so they really <laughs> oh, do man. just love, love digging oh, into Josh Molina. That's too bad. So that scene comes to a close, and we come up at night. It's a little bit pre-show, and we basically are just watching Isaac watch Roland Shepard's press conference, and he gives his explanation about why he cannot play underneath the Confederate flag. It was very important to my parents and to their parents that I be the first in my family to attend college. But I can't imagine that any of them would feel anything but shame and humiliation at the sight of me playing football under that flag. I wish no disrespect to my school, my fellow students, or my teammates. I'll answer any questions you have at this point. Dan comes walking in. They talk about it. He's a star. He's a stud. He's shown that in his, in his few starts that he's got to have. So they have no doubt he'll be picked up. But then we find out this goes a little bit deeper when Isaac tells him six other players, two of them white, none of them starters, are also going to stand up with him. And, and they will not get picked up. So it becomes a bigger story right there. 
Dan explains that he he wrote the piece that Isaac asked him to write, and he's like, all right, I'll give it. It's everything you wanted it to be, but we're all pretty surprised that, that you're not doing a commentary yourself. And uh, Isaac says, look, Luther's been looking for an opportunity to fire me. He tells him, I can't do this or I will get fired because he's been for six months now looking for that one mistake. And Dan has a nice moment here where he says, do you think that if you got fired, there wouldn't be a hundred people lined up to go with you? Just like Roland Shepard has his six guys standing up with him. It's another one of those good father-son moments that they've got going on. And he still encourages him, please do an editorial, throw out this story. You get up there for two minutes. Please do it. And he still says, I can't do it this time. And more snuffy, sad music cues. (laughs) The snuffy, sad music cues come at very opportune times. But, man, I mean, you really do see the relationship that Isaac has with his employees. It's hard. This is the managing editor. This is the boss, their boss, their direct boss. And think about your boss at your job. If you have a boss that you can talk to like that and have that type of relationship with, think about how lucky you are because that's pretty cool to be able to talk to your boss in that regard and be that close emotionally uh, with somebody that you you look up to professionally. You also seem to look up to him personally. That's pretty cool. If you notice, and I didn't, this is again credit to the commentary, there's tape marks clearly visible on the carpet where they're, they were supposed to be oh, hitting. Oh, and no. it's, it's funny that Robert Berlinger says, oh, I noticed them 10 years late, but I noticed them. And I, I, that's one of those little nitpicky things I, I wouldn't have caught, but I'm always on the lookout for it. So I was very happy to catch at least something in this episode. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had it. Although now that I think about it, Roland Shepard is playing football. This is late December. We're almost at Christmas. There's not a whole lot of college football being played right now. Maybe bowl series. I think, bowl it's, I, I think it's bowl season now at this point. Once you get to about December the 19th, that was the first day of bowl season last year. And obviously it goes all the way to you know the first or second weekend of January whenever the playoff championship is played. So there is a lot of college football being played. But the way Jeremy was kind of explaining it earlier, it made it seem like you know, in the middle, in the heart of the season right. is when the you know the one guy got hurt. Roland Shepard steps in. So yeah, a little, a little bit off, really, at that point. I think that's another anachronism right there. I, th- I think we're we're getting a little lazy with these uh, writing staff. We're getting a little, uh, we're getting a little uh, lackluster when it comes to being on top of uh, what time of the year it is. Well, thankfully, this wasn't. Although they mentioned soccer highlights earlier too, and who's playing <laughs> soccer in December? And they're well? not, and they're not talking about Premier League no soccer way. in 1998. You oh, know, boy. so the so. I'm getting a little thrown out, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not very happy right now about this. You know what? I like this episode enough to cut him some slack, <laughs> no, and I'm going to assume yeah. Western Tennessee is like playing in the Rose Bowl or something. And so <laughs> he's got to get out there on the on the big stage. And yeah, they just so. neglected to mention. <laughs> we have a new scene where we go into two minutes live. We're getting ready to go. They're still discussing what's going to be play of the year. And here's some more of those suggestions. Jeremy says the Yankees win the World Series, which Dana says, yeah, big shock after they won 114, 114 games. games. Yeah. Uh, Dana then says, oh, obviously, and this is this one hits us pretty close to yep. home, how did we forget Michael Jordan and the Bulls win the NBA championship? And Jeremy's response... Yeah, there's something that doesn't happen a lot. These aren't necessarily always plays. that right. they're, ta- they're talking about moments, certainly. Now, if you want to say Jordan against Russell and knocking down the shot to win the sixth champ, yeah, that's there's probably a play. a play of the year. Mark McGuire hitting the 70th home run uh, could be play of the year. Jeff Gordon, if he made some kind of incredible you know, move to win a race. Yeah, maybe that's the play of the year. But you can't just name generic sporting events and say that's the play of the year. Was this, unless, was 98 the World Series with the, the Derek Jeter flip to make the out at home? No, that was 2001 against Oakland. Okay, so 
So that didn't even that. happen at that point. Yeah, I mean, what play are you looking for exactly? I mean, you got to be a little bit more specific. And then they ask the technical crew. Who get really excited to be able to throw their two cents in as well. They get really pumped about adding their two cents in. And, and the things that they mention are just kind of generic. They just say three people's names. <laughs> it's like Marco Mira winning two majors. Yeah, but that's not a play. Not a play. Cal Ripken breaking the streak, which means he didn't play as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, except the streak coming to an end, which doesn't make sense. And then Peyton Manning. But what, what does that mean? What does that mean? And and, the, and that's why Dana just goes, yeah, that those are all terrible. That ideas. was a waste of time. Uh, you know, it's funny when we talked with Daniel Bramlett a couple of weeks ago about uh, this show, and, and obviously he's the SEC Network and ESPN producer that joined us for a conversation as well. This is the scene that he talked about. These are one of the scenes that he talked about. That's kind of like the defining moment of how this sticks out to people in sports. Everybody has their opinion on it, and you know, like. The technical guys say, you know, this is editorial. We're just the technical crew. But everybody gets into this because they really enjoy it. Nicole said the same thing tonight in our interview. You kind of get into this because you really do love sports. And no matter what you can do to contribute to that, whether it's being behind the scenes, whether it's being a writer, a broadcaster, a producer, an editor, whatever it may be, you get into the sports in some capacity to be a part of it because you enjoy it so much. It is nice to see that Dave, Will, and Chris like sports enough to have something to yeah, say. Yeah, they got something. Instead of being like, I don't know, I just press buttons. Like, it's yeah, nice no, to see got, that they they're got something. They got something going on. At the end of the scene, Isaac comes waltzing in and says, Dana, I think you can get rid of Dan's piece. I would like to say a couple of words tonight. And she just beaming smiles. She knows what's coming. So she's like, I don't think he's going to have a problem with that. No problem at all. And we cut to the scene. Here comes the big one. This is our dramatic moment here. Actually, our second dramatic moment. Two monologues in this one. Uh, Isaac gets introduced by Casey and gives his editorial. Very cool moment where the entire cast and crew is gathered around watching. And the commentary said, everyone really did gather around and watch Robert Guillaume give this because it was a very powerful and very well-delivered speech. Exaudio, comperio, conloquor. That's a Latin phrase that translates to listen, to learn, to speak. Those words are carved into the stone arches that form the entrance to the undergraduate library at Tennessee Western University. This afternoon, an extraordinary young man named Roland Shepard made what had to have been an excruciating decision. He said he wasn't playing football under a Confederate flag. Six of his teammates then chose not to let Shepard stand alone. And I choose to join them at this moment. In the history of the South, there's much to celebrate. And that flag is a desecration of all of it. Tennessee Western has produced some outstanding alumni in the last hundred years. People of wisdom and vision, strength and compassion. One of them is Luther Sachs. Luther, you've got a phone call to make. You've got to call Chancellor Blake and tell him to take down that flag or he can stop looking for your checks in the mail. You've got to put these young men back in a classroom, and I mean pronto. These boys are going to make you proud one day, Luther. I challenge you to do the right thing. Not an unreasonable request to make of a man whose alma mater declares exaudio, comperio, conloquor, to listen, to learn, to speak. In the meantime, God go with you, Roland Shepard, and you six southern gentlemen of Tennessee. God's not done with any of you yet. Look at the room. I mean, when Isaac talks, <laughs> clearly clearly people sit down and listen, and they want to hear what this guy has to say, and that's how much clout that Isaac carries as the managing editor of this show. But lest we not forget this guy's background. I mean, an incredible journalistic career 
as a writer and reporter and editor and now a managing editor. I mean, this guy has done it all, and his journalistic chops are as sharp as they've ever been. This is an awesome, awesome scene. And I couldn't help but think of John Saunders in watching this episode because John Saunders, who passed away earlier this year, was that guy. You know, when he when he was on the sports reporters, he would always deliver his monologue at the end of the show every week. And it was a commentary very much like this. And I couldn't help but just think, man, that that really feels like home again when it comes to how these guys go about approaching these two-minute, three-minute commentaries and how well-written they are and how well-thought-out they are and how nuanced they are. It's tremendous, tremendous writing. I thought of Bob Lee during this speech. You know, he, He's one of the best journalists we have at ESPN. I, I couldn't help but think of guys like that that are speaking about these issues. And part of the reason I did think about John Saunders is the fact that Robert Guillaume is black, Isaac is black, John Saunders was black, and they were not afraid to tackle issues of race and prejudice and persecution in a very intelligent, impressive way. You know, their demeanor was so sharp and smart and there was no shtick. It was giving you great writing in a small amount of time to help you understand why this issue was important. I couldn't help but think about that when I was watching this scene. It really goes to show the chops that Isaac has. As you said, he's behind a desk for the most part in the three years that that the show has been on the air in this universe. As far as we know, this is the first time he's ever been on camera and... He saved up the good stuff yeah. and, and really puts it on display. Seriously. Also a really well shot clip. There's a lot of kind of seeing the room, seeing the reactions. There's a lot of kind of close-ups of Robert Kiem with the lights behind him just kind of twinkling, very intense. A lot of those tight close-ups like we saw last week as well. And, and just a really, really, really effective couple of minutes here. They show somebody taking notes, you know, at one point, like so whoever's taking the notes for later on and, and review and things like that. Like they're, she's just sitting at a at a desk with a little monitor so you can still see the speech and she's just writing notes down and you see everybody in the technical crew because, again, when the technical crew is working, they're doing stuff behind the set, behind the scenes. They're hustling and bustling around and the whole world stops. This world, this little tiny world that these people are working in, this bubble, everybody inside of it just stops to listen to this guy talk. Not to stay completely on the serious side, it ends, and Dan has some really funny lines about, <laughs> I could kiss you on the mouth right now. All right, I'm having over there. some really goofy <laughs> thoughts as he comes up, just so proud of Isaac for, for really stepping up. Uh, interesting note, last week was the first time we saw Allison, the hair and makeup woman, and this time we see, we see Monica. Monica doing the same deal. So that's kind of, and it's the only time we'll see her, but it's nice to keep that kind of going on. She's still there. She had the roller. She had the lint roller. And she went over to Casey's shoulder and was, was wiping down the I lint. I wonder if they're having an awkward moment where he's like, <laughs> Monica, he's just saying her name over and over. Monica. How are you tonight, Monica? Thank you, Monica. Like, just good to, really to see you again, in. Monica. Monica, you should really stick around because some good things are about to happen. As uh, Isaac walks into the control room, everyone stands and applauds. Jeremy gives a, a nice little, no kidding, play of the year moment. And he says, thank you. And then, Immediately, Kim walks in very stern and says, Luther Sachs is on the phone. So Isaac's, it's go time. And he's reminded that, hey, we're here for you. We're behind you. Yeah, Dan comes up to him and gives him the, the fist bump and says, we're right behind you. We don't really get to see the resolution of that until really the next couple episodes it's going to be mentioned. But he goes off to kind of face the music. He stood up. Now he's got to see what comes his way. We go back to the show and Dan and Casey give this nice wrap up. This is that kind of powerful Christmas episode stuff we were talking about at the top of the episode here, where they start listing off crew members' names, who's there that is underappreciated, and we think it's time that we we let you know who they are. 
Nice trivia. It is real crew members. Yep, real it's crew members. It's the real crew members standing around watching them. When he says Monica's name and we see Janelle Maloney, the real Monica is next to next her. Next to her. That's Monica Brazelton, I guess. That's very cool. Uh, and we just sort of have that really, really nice pan out. We see everyone gathered around watching. We got the lights. They mention all sorts of people. Cajun, who they mention and make a point about, apparently the craft service guy. Oh, that's I'm, awesome. <laughs> I love the fact that, that the craft service guy is named Cajun. But that's did they, awesome. Did they have provolone is my question. We'll, and, get, we'll get to that in a season or so. <laughs> and then uh, Janet Ashikagi is mentioned as well. The real editor. And the real editor, editor. And an Emmy Award winner. And I know you'd appreciate this. She edited... The Parking Garage episode of Seinfeld. Oh, I did not know that. I found that just for you. That's amazing. As we pan out, we get the fade to black, and our Sports Night title card has a little set ahead taking on it, which is kind of cool. <laughs> it's a really good episode. It's got its funny. It's got its its heartwarming, and it's also got its serious. So we're really hitting on all cylinders with this one. Great performances all around. Everyone does a great job. Robert Gim especially, and Josh Charles too. I think even though he's not really carrying a storyline in this. He's really a big part of Isaac's and really helps push it. So just all around, really, really solid episode. And really good stuff from Janelle Maloney. And obviously, she would go on to prominence in another Aaron Sorkin show as Dada Telemas in The West Wing, but comes in and really makes an impact, you know, right off the top in a short scene, but an impactful one. And uh, thus began my crush on Janelle Maloney. <laughs> this, the, this would be a longstanding and unrequited very much unrequited crush on Janelle Maloney, but uh, I thought she was really, really cool in this episode, and the, the whole thing really comes together well. And it's um, it's the start of the Christmas episode run for Aaron Sorkin, where all these episodes centered around Christmas time just happen to have a little extra oomph in all of them. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week here on Those Stories Plus. As always, you can download the episode at our website, thosestoriespod.weebly.com, or on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at... Those stories pod. You can follow Adam at, at Adam Amin and follow me and be vastly disappointed at SJCIM. We're looking forward to being back with you next week when we get to talk about Smokey, another Robert Berlinger directed episode. There is a continuation of the Confederate flag storyline and uh, some interesting things start to happen between Dana and Casey. Thanks to Nicole Auerbach from USA Today for taking some time out to talk about the six Southern gentlemen of Tennessee as well. For Steve Semino, I'm Adam Amin, and you've been listening to Those Stories Plus. Those Stories Plus.